Ladies and gentlemen, that's right. It's yours truly, Rad Dad. 2024? Had I already said that yet? Man, maybe I feel like it's the first time now. I don't know. Uh, Hey. Nicknames don't get old with this guy. And it's going to keep rolling that way, Rad Dad, till I die. So here's the deal. The Ephus was a podcast that Marty and Larry did. And without a doubt, I was so proud of them and the amount of work they did for this obscure history baseball podcast. And baseball is a sport that, you know, I have an affinity for. I did play a little bit of t-ball, a little bit of little league as a, as a, as a tot in Michigan. But it wasn't necessarily something that I stuck with. I always appreciated it as a sport. These two, man, they love the Cubbies. They love the sport. And in the episode I selected was about Harry Carey, which you probably see in the description. But regardless, I love these guys and I'm proud of them. And since... My show is also a history show. I figured, why not throw an EFES episode up there for this week's Beer City Media rerun. Anyways, season two coming in hot. First week of March. First Monday of March. March 4th, I believe. Either way, I don't have a calendar. And I'm not moving. And neither should you. As you listen to this throwback episode of the Evis podcast. Also, click all the links in the description. Why aren't you doing it? You should do it. Anyway, rate and review. We'll be back in March. I'm Marty. I'm Larry. And this is the EFIS Podcast. Time for another episode of the EFIS Podcast. Thanks for joining us. If this is your first time with us, this is a weekly podcast where we talk about some of the goofier stuff in baseball's history. Yay. Sometimes it's a long time ago. Sometimes it's not a long time ago. Just a couple years ago. Yeah. But we always try to do it. I got a correction here. Uh-oh. Got an email. Uh-oh. Kevin Graham wrote in. Oh, you uh, guys are on the ball. I think this was about the Trading Places episode. Okay. Uh. Hey guys, I really enjoy your podcast. Always very funny. Thank you. Of course we are. (laughs) Keep up the good work. We will. I I wanted to correct you on something that you said on your last podcast. That would be the, well, it wasn't the last one, but 
Uh, you made the mention of the Nippon Ham Fighters, and you mispronounced the team name. Oh. They are not the Nippon Ham Fighters. They are the Nippon Ham Fighters. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. I. I yes. Look, yeah. I looked. Yeah. Looked into it. And indeed, I guess Nippon Ham is a, a company. No, I knew that. You I did. knew okay. that, too. I, and I. I didn't. I don't know if, you know, and I understand he's completely right. But yeah, I mean, I guess it is just a force. Like, I, you just want to say Nippon ham fighters. But it makes sense. Who would yeah. want to fight ham? It's delicious. <laughs> Maybe that's that's it. Maybe you're fighting a ham sandwich, trying to cram it down your throat so fast. Uh, I I haven't heard from him since because we did the Sadahara. O I know. Episode. Yeah, I'm assuming he's same been thing, like but... he's been locked up in a scene. Yeah, asylum. let's let's hope he's he's okay <laughs> after that. Yeesh. No bruises on his forehead. <laughs> crashing in the wall so, but thank you for that no we i completely accept that and i know better but what can you what can you do yeah. i mean it's just one of those things but we do appreciate that and if you guys ever catch anything else feel oh free to let us know oh boy yeah we, well <laughs> we we've gotten calls from the pronunciation police yeah. quite a bit but it's gonna happen so we apologize if you're offended by it <laughs> but yeah feel free to let us know yeah. we always like to hear from you even if it's Correcting us in some way, shape, or form. Hey, I like learning new things. That's why we started the podcast. Yeah. So anyway, speaking of learning new things, what do we have going on today? Today, we have Harry Christopher Carabina. Oh. Otherwise known as Harry Carey. Ah! Born March 1st, 1914 in St. Louis, Missouri. I've heard of him. (laughs) His father passed away when uh, he was an infant, and then his mother died when he was eight. Ouch. Right off the bat. His aunt Doxy took him in, and in high school, Harry played baseball and was offered a scholarship at the University of Alabama, but he had to turn it down due to the fact that he did not have the money to cover room and board. Instead, Harry played semi-pro ball in the St. Louis area while working with a sports equipment manager. He then went on to write the director of KMOX Radio, the station that broadcasted the St. Louis Cardinals games, arguing that he could do a better job than the current announcers. (laughs) I love this guy's moxie. And maybe something like that stood out now, but like nowadays, any any media outlet probably gets a million emails like that every single day. And tweets and Facebook posts and blah, blah, blah. Right, yeah. We could do your job better than you. Yeah, these armchair journalists and, and whatnot. He had to actually work at this, write a pen a letter. Right. Put it in a mailbox. Proofread it, probably, before yeah. he put it, dropped it in the, in the envelope. He got an audition out of that, and although he didn't get the job, it did kickstart his sports journalism career. <laughs> Kids, don't try that at home. <laughs> this might have worked back then, like I said. but Yeah. So, in 1940, he started his career in Juliet, Illinois. He then moved on to a Kalamazoo, Michigan station broadcasting college baseball games. After being rejected for military service for World War II due to his poor eyesight, he moved back to St. Louis in 1944. There, he hosted a nightly sports show that quickly became popular. Uh, The following year, he was hired to broadcast the home games for the Cardinals and the St. Louis Browns, which were like a short-lived, probably the worst American League team ever. The St. Louis Browns? Yeah. Yeah. they mercifully were killed. <laughs> and he did both games? Yeah, he did. He did the home games for both teams. 
Uh, he was considered as much an expert at selling the sponsor's beer as he was at broadcasting well, the game. Well, yeah, and tasting the beer, too, I'm yeah, sure. Yes. We'll get into that. Okay. Uh, here's an ex- excerpt from the, a 1968 issue of Sports Illustrated. The next year, 1946, Kerry made his big breakthrough. That season, the Cardinals forged into the thick of the pennant race, whipping public interest to a fever pitch. Accordingly, the radio stations decided that on days when the Cardinals were playing on the road and the Browns were idle or rained out, the Cardinals game would be broadcasted in recreated form. That is, the announcers would broadcast from their St. Louis studios, giving the play-by-play as it came in on a Western Union ticker. Yeah. So they would just pretend? They would just make up the game, essentially. They would read it? They would get, like, ball one, and then you didn't know where, what kind of pitcher. Right, in, so. yeah. So you just kind of grounded to first. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. That's, that's, that's crazy. I had no idea. Well, the chi- were- here's the chief flaw in that, as it goes on. The chief flaw in this arrangement was that the ticker frequently broke down, <laughs> sometimes for as long as five minutes. Whoops. Leaving the listening audience with deadly stretches of silence or meaningless helpings of trivia from the announcers. <laughs> They didn't have the Aflac duck back then, but and then would it rubber band? Like when the ticker came up, they'd have to quickly like make up for that five minutes and explain what happened. Yeah. So <laughs> all of a sudden, like after a five minute silence, you get five minutes worth of game condensed in like thirty seconds, so they could carry on. That's hilarious. Carey, however, put his wits to work. "Quote: I de- developed a hell of a flair," he says. <laughs> when the ticker slowed down, slowed up, or broke down, I'd create an argument on the ball field, or I'd have a sandstorm blowing up, and the player, <laughs> ball players calling time to wipe That's their so eyes. Amazing, <laughs> making crap up. <laughs> hell, all the ticker tape carried was the bare essentials: ball one, strike one, ball two, ball three. So I used the license of imagination without destroying the basic facts. Jen. And now the field is covered in cats. Yeah, <laughs> oh, holy no. cow. A foul ball was a high foul back to the rail. The catcher's racing back. He can't get to it. A pretty blonde in a red dress who is amply endowed, amply endowed, has helped herself to a souvenir. This helped sell the Gridesbeck beer. What? Okay, sure. Let me take a minute to tell you about the beer. Yeah. She was drinking it, that well-endowed woman. I'm sure. Kerry was also seen as influential enough that he could affect team personnel moves. Uh, Cardinals historian Peter Gallenbach has suggested Kerry may have had a partial hand in the maneuvering that led to the exit of general manager Bing Devine, the man who had assembled the team that won the 1964 World Series, and of field manager Johnny Keane, whose rumored successor, Louis Leo DeRocher, was believed to have been supported by Carey for the job. He's like the frickin' godfather. Really? <laughs> Gotta kiss his ring. <laughs> Seriously. Carey, however, stated in his autobiography that he liked Johnny Keene as a manager and didn't want him to be involved in Keene's dismissal. During this period, Carey's voice would be heard over two-thirds of the United States as KMOX was a 50,000-watt station. Since St. Louis was the team furthest south and west until 1958, Carey, along with his partner Jack Buck, were the voice of baseball for millions of fans who had never even seen a Major League Baseball That's game. That's John Buck's dad, too, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Carey's style was concise and crisp and often critical of poor play, including that of his own club. Sure. As the Cardinals announcer, Carey broadcast three World Series in 64, 67, and 68 on NBC. 
In November of 1968, Carrie was nearly killed after being struck by an automobile while crossing a street in St. Louis. Whoa. He suffered two broken legs in the accident. I'm sure if he wasn't zigzagging, he might have been killed, bud. <laughs> that was, that he was not zigzagging. That yeah. saved him. <laughs> <laughs> that alcohol keeps you a little rubbery. Right, exactly. Uh, but he recuperated in time to return to the broadcast booth for the start of the 1969 season. Following the 1969 season, Carey was fired by the Cardinals after having called their games for 25 years, his longest tenure with any sports team, what? and would be the usual like career length of an average announcer. But he's just getting started. Yeah, seriously. Well, does it say why they fired him? Uh, from what I kind of gathered, he, he clashed with the uh, management okay. there. I think he, they kind of got sick of him p- sticking his nose in the you know, personnel <laughs> moves and whatnot. You don't say. Yeah. They they took issue with an announcer trying to make personnel moves. <laughs> right. <laughs> I got a trade, boss. So he spent one season broadcasting for the Athletics in 1970 before he grew tired of owner Charles O'Finley's interference and accepted a job with the White Sox. How does an, I, well, I guess, I don't know. It seems weird that an owner would interfere with broadcasts, but I'm sure that there's some that just try to get their hands in it. Personality types. Are, yeah, there's yeah, some yeah. people like that. Got to micromanage everything. Some Jeffrey Loria types. Mm-hmm. Apparently, the mu- the feeling was mutual. Uh, Finley later said that, quote, that sh- Carrie pulled in St. Louis didn't go over here. <laughs> Finley wanted Carrie to, dis- to change his broadcast chant of holy cow to, get this, holy mule. <laughs> so much catchier. Oh, now that is meddling right that, there. That th- is meddling to the infinite degree that's a guy who thinks his ideas are better than everyone else's oh man you let your talent shine let them be themselves <laughs> you don't oh, just that just oh. yeah, people just want to put their stamp on everything mm-hmm. i'm sure that like people out there have worked for bosses like that yeah or maybe you are a boss like that and if you are just stop knock it holy mule really just kick back and let the place run itself exactly I mean, However, there were some reports that Carey and Finley did, in fact, work well with each other, and that Carey's strained relationship with the A's came from longtime A's announcer Monty Moore. Carey was loose and freewheeling, while Moore was more restrained and sedate. Quite frankly, I think they, they would actually get along together. But Yeah, I mean, that'd be you a know, decent pair. Instead of just trying to talk all over each other, you know, right, they'd probably right. find their place. Like we do. Carey then joined the White Sox in 1971 and quickly became popular with the Southside faithful and enjoying a reputation for jovility and public carousing, sometimes doing home games, home broadcast games bare-chested from the bleachers. <laughs> there are pictures out there. Yeah, And yeah. they are glorious. Of course. With ladies. just he, And he was an old dude at that point, yeah. too. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, he'd already been in the game for 30 years or so at that point. He looks like every grandfather from the 70s. Yep. 70s grandpa. He wasn't always popular with the players, though. Kerry uh, had an equivalent... Reputation for being excessively critical of home team blunders and for continuing criticism of certain players even after one on f- one on field mistake. During his tenure with the White Sox, Kerry was teamed with many color ana- analysts who didn't work out well, including Bob Waller, Bill Mercer, and ex major league catcher J.C. Martin, among others. But in 1976, during a game of the Texas Rangers, Kerry had former outfielder Jimmy Purcell, uh, who was working for the Rangers at the time, as a guest in the White Sox booth that night. The tandem proved to work so well that Purcell was hired to be Carey's partner in the White Sox radio and TV booth beginning in 1977. 
Purcell and Carey became very popular. In 1977, he also teamed with Mary Shane for broadcasts. Uh, Mary Shane was the very first full-time female play-by-play announcer for Major oh. League Baseball. Yeah, that's in the 70s, early 70s? Yes, yeah, late 70s. Late 70s. She was born in 1945 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and was a pioneer in American sports broadcasting. She was born Mary Driscoll in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the daughter of a former semi-pro baseball player. In 1967, she graduated from the University of Wisconsin at Madison with a Bachelor's Arts in History. After college, she became a history teacher at a Milwaukee high school for six years. In 1975, she decided a career change was needed and became a radio sportscaster okay, at WRIT. Well, that's about as much of a 180 as you can get. <laughs> history teachers. Sp- yeah. You know, I think I need a change in life. Sports announcer. That's what Of course, we'll that's the logical explanation. I'm surprised I didn't think of it earlier, <laughs> like while I was in college. She, she, this is where she covered the Brewers, the Bucks, and the Marquette Warriors. And in 1976, while working in the county stadium press box for a White Sox Brewers game, White Sox announcer Harry Carey was surprised to see a young woman in the press box. I bet he was. Invited her to do some play by play. Oh, no. Sit on my lap. <laughs> I'm sure those were the first words spoken out of Harry Carey's mouth when he met her. I I can't I can't uh yeah can't disagree with you on that Harry one. Harry Carey's four-word pickup line never fails. <sighs> I might have to try that tonight. <laughs> Good luck. Let me know how that works. Yeah, I might be arrested too. So Shane did well enough that he asked her to join the broadcast team the next day, and again on a subsequent White Sox visit to County Stadium. You sure put the broad in broadcast. In 1977, WMAQ Radio and WSNS-TV, the flagship stations for the Chicago White Sox, hired her to join the broadcast team, which already included Kerry, Lorne Brown, and Jimmy Purcell. Many in the Chicago and national media believe that Shane's hiring was yet another publicity stunt by White Sox owner Bill Veek. Vec. Uh, It's Vec. Vec. Whoop, whoop. Dang it. Sorry. Well, don't spell it Veek, then, okay? (laughs) Exactly. That's not my fault. Brett Favre. <laughs> Favre. Yeah, exactly. Now, I I think this kind of was a publicity stunt, but like an educated one. She was a, uh, she was a journalist. She was a sports sure. journalist. So I don't think it was too far out of the realm. But I'm picturing Anchorman with Christina <laughs> you, That is around that, yeah, around that time period. How, now, I'm acting like Anchorman was like a documentary or right. something. <laughs> <laughs> However, by mid-season, it was apparent that her lack of experience for the role she was thrust in was quickly becoming a failed experiment. Her lack of knowledge of baseball situations and rules were noticeable to the media as well as the listeners. And she didn't get hairy beers fast enough. (laughs) Chop, chop! Shane's broadcast centered on the families of the White Sox players instead of the events of the game and the hardcore statistics that baseball fans in Chicago demanded. Oh, boy. Shane was pulled from the White Sox broadcast before the 77 season concluded and her contract was not renewed. Shane later worked in Wor- Worcester, Massachusetts, where she became a sports writer for the Worcester Telegram in 1981, where she covered the Boston Celtics as one of the few female NBA beat reporters. So how does that work? It's like Carlton Fisk up to bat. He's batting two thirty eight on the season with 17 home runs. Yes. And, and he's got two daughters and a dog named Todd. <laughs> <laughs> In his off time, he likes to cook. <laughs> yeah. 
Which, you know, I mean, that would probably fly nowadays. Yeah, it definitely would. It, yeah. It, it, maybe a little ahead of her time, I guess. I don't know. In her 30s, she became plagued by heart troubles, and on November 1st, 1987, at the age of 42, she died of a heart attack oh, at her home in Progestin. I, got, I, I know. thought we got over that with the last episode. <sighs> no, we're killing people oh, on the podcast. Boy. Among Carrie's experiences during his time with the White Sox was the infamous Disco Demolition Night. Mm-hmm. Future episode. Can we, can we play a sound clip of that? Absolutely. Yes. I'm pretty sure that I saw two people having sex behind third base. Not even Harry Carey, then the White Sox announcer, could control the frenzied crowd. Can you hear me out there? Holy cow! What say we all regain our seats so we can play baseball again? My friends and I went and sat in the Tigers' dugout. We were passing around the Jack Daniels, and one of the coaches came out and he said, uh, son, Give me that bottle. And my yes, sir, I gave him the bottle. And he goes, now, son, get out of our dugout. After nearly 20 minutes, Carrie and Bill Vec tried again, beseeching those who'd stormed the field to return to their seats. They even broke into song. Their efforts were futile as was the incongruously polite tone of a message on the scoreboard. The fans simply wouldn't surrender the field for the second game. Now the police are out on the field. Boy, oh boy. Yeah, that, that, was, that was what I was talking about, and that took place on July 12th, 1979, in what began as a promotional effort by Chicago radio station WLUP, uh, the station's popular DJ Steve Dahl and the Sox to sell seats at a White Sox Tigers game, and boy did it work! <laughs> it sure did. Spoiler alert: got more than their money's worth. Too. Yeah. Uh, the doubleheader resulted in a debacle, as Dahl blew up a crate full of disco records on the field after the first game had ended. Thousands of rowdy fans from the sold-out event poured out into the stands onto the field at Comiskey Park. Uh, Carrie and Purcell via the public address system, tried to calm down the crowd, and as you heard, did not work. And it implored them to return, by re- imploring them to return to their seats in vain. Did they think that was going to work? I, I got, mean, there's I, about 80,000 people on the baseball di- diamond. and You're just grasping at straws. You're just I hoping guess. something works. It's like, hey, everybody, let's just go back to our seats so we can play some baseball. And everybody cheers and then yeah. continues to tear I, everything apart. I mean, the field was literally on fire. It was bedlam. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Eventually, the field was cleared by Chicago police in riot gear, and the White Sox were forced to forfeit the second game of the doubleheader <laughs> due to the extensive damage done to the playing field. Yeah, I think we'll get into that later date. For sure. That, that, that's going to be a fun one. Yeah. Uh, after 11 seasons on Chicago's south side, Kerry traded Comiskey Park for Wrigley Field, and this is, I think, where most, most people know oh, yeah, from. I mean, it was such a perfect fit. It was. The, the north side... Is much better than the South Side. Sorry, White Sox fans. Well, but just it's true. Just the fans too. Yeah. I mean, it's more of like a party atmosphere at Wrigley Field, mm-hmm. and, and he... front, yeah, right. <laughs> On the South Side, it's more of a, a angry drunks. Yeah, it's it's like a stay alive atmosphere <laughs> there. <laughs> Screw you, White Sox fans. <laughs> but thanks for listening. Yeah, keep listening. <laughs> 
So he joined the Cubs in 1982 after fellow Hall of Famer Jack Brickhouse had retired. Although he was well past retirement age, Kerry became a beloved figure in Chicago, <laughs> uh, known for his love of beer, nightlife, <laughs> and the Cubs. That's what I'm saying. Like, Wrigleyville's so full of bars. Perfect. I know. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Keep going. Yeah, his hopeful demeanor resonated around the city and the country since many fans could enjoy Kerry on television via WGN cable. Uh, in contrast to the sports vision concept, the Cubs' own television outlet had become among the first of the cable television superstations, mm -hmm. offering their programming to providers across the United States for free, and Kerry became as famous nationwide as he had long been on the South Side and previously in St. Louis. And if you've ever wondered why there's a lot of Cubs fans spread out around the country... Me included. Yeah, that's, uh, that's why. Instead they, of, it was easy to get them on cable TV. I was a latchkey kid, and yep. instead of doing homework, I watched Cubs games, <laughs> and that's why I'm now I'm podcasting. Same here. I was raised that way, but I mean, it was it was a lot easier. I mean, a lot of times it was easier to watch a Cubs game than it was a, a local Tigers game. It was. Uh, yep. The games were earlier, and mm -hmm. they were afternoon games. games most of the time. Yeah. Yeah, well, because they didn't have lights yeah. until Not 1988, until, yeah, exactly. so they were all afternoon games. In fact, Kerry had already been affiliated with WGN for some years by then, as WGN actually produced the White Sox games for broadcast on competitor WSNS-TV, and Kerry was a frequent sportscaster on the nation's newscasts. Uh, the timing worked in Kerry's favor, as the Cubs ended up winning the National League East Division title in 1984. Ah, uh, yes. I barely remember that. And radio station WGN's nationwide audience. Millions came to love the microphone swinging carry, continuing his White Sox practice of leading the home run, home crowd in singing "Take Me Out to the Ball Game," which how could you not? Yeah, I mean you you just had to, and and every Cubs game I went to as a kid, you always looked forward to the seventh inning stretch. We had seats once underneath the uh, broadcast booth, mm -hmm. and I I kid you not, every half inning he was going to get yeah, two beers. That's the same thing with me. I was probably about ah, maybe eight years old or so, and he. We had those same seats, probably, right, right under the broadcast booth. You could see them walk by up on those little catwalks mm -hmm. up there, because Wrigley Field's about 800 years old. Yeah. And, um, yeah, he one day he looked at me, and he pointed at me, and he waved to me. And that awesome. was just like as an eight-year-old kid or a little kid. I mean, that's that's life-changing moment right It there. is. <laughs> totally. <laughs> like having hands laid upon thee. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> then he spilled his beer on me. Oh, no, man. No, it didn't really happen, but... And then you got superpowers. <laughs> yes. Super <laughs> drunk powers is what I got. Yeah. So take me out to the ball game. You've probably seen that on the If you've seen a bro Cubs broadcast, they still do it to this day. They just have a. a well, now that they have the Jumbotron. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Out, out in, uh, in the outfield, they've actually, I've seen them play Harry Carey singing a couple times, and that's awesome. Which, that's which, really cool. when I was looking into this, I found a lot of petitions asking them to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And they should. So it, it, because otherwise they have like B-grade celebrities or local right. people, which is fine once in a while, but no, man, yeah, play it play it on the Jumbotron every time. Keep it alive. That would be that would be perfect. Yeah. So he did, you know, he'd do the take me out to the ball game during the seventh inning stretch, mimicking his mannerisms, his gravelly voice, his habit of mispronouncing or slurring some players' names, which some of the players mimicked in turn. Uh, there's, you know, uh, <laughs> players and, I mean, Will Ferrell's done it. Oh, yeah. It's iconic. There's, it's been a long-running joke that we're lucky he wasn't around when Kosuke Fukudome got <laughs> yeah. on the team. <laughs> His head oh. would have exploded. Oh, my goodness. 
he was also in the television being nationwide. It, it helped him trademark those uh, barrel shaped wide rimmed glasses yeah. that were actually prescribed to him by a doctor <laughs> <laughs> by the Harry Carey of doctors. Yeah. <laughs> Holy cow. Your eyesight's bad. <laughs> <laughs> Among his signatures, Kerry would call home runs by saying, Exciting victories were closed with roars of And of course, his legendary Holy cow. Roars is kind of a uh, <laughs> Slurs, yeah, roars More of like a, a Grumbles <laughs> A grumbling slur <laughs> Cubs win! Yeah, Cubs win! Cubs win! Holy cow They'd have to wake him up at the end of games sometimes <laughs> For several years Man, I, look I am still fairly young, and hangovers kill me. Sure. So I can only imagine when you're an octogenarian, <laughs> what those hangovers are like. Stay up all night. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, he's drinking Bud Light all night, so it can't be that bad. <laughs> okay, true, true. I should have had some old styles for this one, but it's morning, and I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's morning, and we're not Harry Carey. Exactly. I don't have that constitution. <laughs> For several years, Carrie and broadcast partner Steve Stone owned a bar and grill in Mesa, Arizona, near Ho Ho Cam Park, the Cubs' spring training site. Been there? Have you? Yeah. The uh, Have you been to the uh, bar? No, I haven't been to the bar. But you've been to the park. I've been to the park. Got to see the Cubs play, I assume. Yeah. Awesome. In February of 1987, Carrie suffered a stroke while at his winter home near Palm Springs, California just prior to spring training for the Cubs 1987 season. This led to his absence from the broadcast booth through most of the first two months of the regular season with WGN, featuring a series of celebrity guest announcers on game telecasts while Harry recuperated. Upon his return, he was phoned during a game by President Ronald Reagan. Wow. True to form, Harry was more enthralled by a Bob Darren... Darren Nurge single, then by a dialogue with the leader of the free world. <laughs> what well, I would have been an interesting conversation. Ron Reagan and, and, and Harry Carey. Harry Carey, yeah. <laughs> Only in the 80s. <laughs> right. Carey's national popularity never flagged after that, although time eventually took a toll on him. Nicknamed the mayor of Rush Street, a reference to Chicago's famous tavern-dominated neighborhood, mm-hmm. and Carey's mm-hmm. well-known taste for Budweiser. Illness and age began to drain some of Carey's skills, even in spite of his remarkable recovery from the stroke. There were occasional calls for him to retire, but he was kept aboard past WGN's normal mandatory retirement age. I didn't even know they had a retirement <laughs> age. Mandatory retirement That's crazy. Jeez. That is an indication of how popular he was. Towards the end of his career, Carey's schedule was limited to home games and road trips to St. Louis and Milwaukee. In December of 1997, Carey's grandson, Chip Carey, was hired to share play-by-play duties for WGN's Cubs broadcast with Harry for the following season. While preparing for his 54th season in 1998, Carry oh, suffered a stroke on Valentine's Day, struck his head on a table, uh, was in a coma, and he passed away two days later. Aww. Leaving uh, the expected grandfather-grandson partnership in the broadcast booth unrealized. Aww. At his funeral... The organ played Take Me Out to the Ball Game. <laughs> of course. Harry Carey's body is interred in All State Cemetery in De Plain, Illinois. And he was embalmed with Budweiser. <laughs> he was 
he was embalmed already. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Following his death, I mean, are we really joking about? It's Harry Carey. I guess. Yes, yeah, you're right. Yes, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Following his death during the entire 1998 season, the Cubs wore a patch on the sleeves of their uniforms depicting a character of Carey. Cubs slugger Sammy Sosa dedicated each of his 66 steroid and inge- I mean home runs that season to Carey. <laughs> Carey had five children, three with his first wife Dorothy, and two with his second wife Marianne. He did married his third wife Dolores. Dutchy Goldman on May 19, <laughs> 1975. His son, Skip Carey, followed him into the booth as a professional baseball broadcaster with the Atlanta Braves until his death on August 3, 2008. Just a bit. Harry Carey is the type of guy that a lady named Dolores Dutchy Goldman just steals his heart right away. Oh, absolutely. I bet you she had small dogs with her at all times, too. <laughs> purse dogs? Yeah. Definitely purse dogs. <laughs> Carey's broadcasting legacy was extended to a third generation as his grandson, Chip Carey, replaced Harry as the Cubs play-by-play announcer from 1998 to 2004. Chip later returned to work for his father, Skip, on Atlanta Braves broadcast, where he had worked for a while in the early 1990s. Now, I don't see anything about his other two children, Dip and Hip, I'm assuming. (laughs) In what Harry Carey said was one of his proudest moments, he worked some innings in the same broadcast booth with his son and grandson during a Cubs-Braves game on May 13, 1991. On air in a professional setting, the younger men would refer to their seniors by their first names. Which, I mean, you have to. You yeah. can't be, can't be Mr. Carey. Dad or Grandpa. Yeah, I guess that's true, too. I thought I was thinking more formal. On air in a... I don't know what kind of relationship you have with your father. <laughs> Strict. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Chip would later refer to the departed Harry in a third person as granddad. Aw. Now, everybody knows about that. Let's get into the seventh inning stretch. That's the thing I think Harry's probably... Oh, absolutely. One of many things, actually. Let's yeah, not just... no, that's, that's the... Simple it down to that one That is thing. the one. Harry's famous seventh inning stretch, singing of Take Me Out to the Ball Game, began during his tenure with the White Sox. In the broadcast booth, Carey made a habit of privately singing the, along with the song, while longtime Comiskey Park organist Nancy Faust was playing it for the public. One afternoon, Carey was singing it to, to himself when WMAQ radio producer broadcaster Jay Scott decided to open the mo- booth mics without letting <laughs> Carey know that he was doing this. Some it's years- a real good thing yeah. that he didn't interject like racial slurs <laughs> or <you know. laughs> some of that old <laughs> I mean old timey. That is a dangerous, dangerous <laughs> thing to do is open up a live mic on Harry Carey when guy. he thinks he's not being yes! heard. <laughs> <laughs> that guy has cojones. So oh, Jay Scott, my next beer is for you. We salute you, sir. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Some years before, Scott had suggested the idea in a memo, but Kerry rejected this. He accepted the idea once it caught on with the home fans. And for the rest of his career, Kerry enthusiastically led the song singing during the seventh inning stretch, using a handheld mic and holding it outside of the booth window. Many of these performances began with Kerry speaking directly to the baseball fans in attendance, either about the state of the day's game or the Chicago weather, mm. <laughs> while the park organ held the opening chord of the song. Then, with his trademark opening... All right! Let me hear you! Good and loud! A one! A two! 
Harry would launch into his distinctive down-tempo version of Take Me Out to the Ball Game. During his tenure announcing games at Comiskey Park and later in Wrigley Field, he would often replace Root 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 for the home team with Root 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 for the Better Cubbies. Known. Cubbies. Cubbies. White Sox. I want you to I want you to beep the White Sox. I will. You said that. <laughs> it's, it is a curse word. The White Sox is a curse word. Yeah. Around here, anyways. For the lyrics, one, two, three strikes, you're out. Harry would usually hold the microphone out to the crowd to punctuate the climactic end of the song. And if the visitors were ahead of the game, Harry would typically make a plea to the home team's offense, let's get some runs. Which is when I went to Cubs games most of the time. That's what I was begging for. And they still do it. The seventh inning stretch routine became Carey's best remembered trademark. After his death, the Cubs began a practice of inviting guest celebrities, local and national, to lead the singing Carey style. The use of guest conductors continues to this day. Since installing the Jumbotron screens inside of Wrigley Field in 2015, the Cubs have periodically shown video footage of Carey singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game as the fans sing along. Thank goodness. Now, remember when we went to a Cubs game, what was it, like four or five years ago probably at this point? Yeah, I'd say about f- four years ago. And it was it was the same weekend that Lollapalooza was going mm-hmm, on in Chicago, mm-hmm. so we got to see uh, Tom Morello, yes! the guitarist for uh, Rage Against the Machine. Yeah, that was great. Sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game, and then I think Wilco did it the next day. <laughs> What, what I mean, if if you're gonna have guests, it might as well be professional singers. Yeah, mate. Well, Eddie Vedder does it a lot. Bill Murray yep. does it a lot because they're both big Cubs fans. Mm-hmm. Jim Belushi, although I don't think they let him do that anymore. I think he just broke <laughs> in. And... Yeah, right. <laughs> My brother was. But famous. remember, if I can go on a diversion here for oh, a second, absolutely. but remember in the 2003 NL, uh, mm-hmm. is it the NLCS? Yep. With the Marlins in the Bartman game, yeah, where Bernie Mac sang "Take Me Out to the Ball Game," yeah, and he said "Root, Root, Root" for the champs. That may that may have been a bigger blunder than Bartman's foul ball catch. I argue that it, it definitely was a bigger. Yeah, of, it was a kiss of death. I, I think it was. I think that was which eventually killed Bernie. That Mac. was the first domino that fell. Yeah. People booed the crap out of him in that game when he said <laughs> he that. He should have known better. Oh, come on. Yeah. And that's why, like, a lot of people at that point were like, okay, we need to stop this celebrity garbage. Yeah. Like, they don't know what they're doing. They're just here to promote their next movie. And I, mm-hmm. I actually agree to uh, this point. You know, it's, it's, let's retire that. Let's, let's stop getting people that are just promoting an, an album or a movie. I, I, I'll play this one in, in, in this, but there's, there's, uh, the famous one I remember is Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> oh, God. I'm sure that went well. <laughs> it went about how you expected it to go. And Ozzy Osbourne. All right, Chicago. Let's, I want to hear a real, real crazy crowd start singing with me. Are you ready? Are you ready? I can't hear you. Are you ready? I don't remember what I have to do. 
my. And I'm sure there's more and more we could dig up. Oh, absolutely. All day discussing it. What was the worst one? Was like um, Denise Richards or Pamela Anderson or one of those? Oh, I can imagine. I mean, people were, I remember people were talking about it for the rest of the season. How god awful it was. <laughs> it tells you how good that Cubs season was. <laughs> the talk was who did the seventh inning stretch. Yeah. Oh, God bless me. <laughs> Among the honors accorded to Harry Carey was the uh, 1989 Ford Frick Award, which is handed out by the Hall of Fame for material. For good bro- service and broadcasting. God, I've never seen that word before. Porky and Pig on the mic, it. everybody. <laughs> he was named Broadcaster of the Year by the Sporting News seven times. The American Sportscasters Association named him the 10th best, best broadcaster of the 20th century in 2000. There's a lot of qualifiers there. <laughs> Harry Carey's Restaurant at 33 West Kinsey in Chicago is also a must-visit when in the city. His wife, Dutchie, remains a presence at the steakhouse and was invited to lead the singing of Take Me Out to the Ball Game when the Cubs celebrated the 100th anniversary of Wrigley Field on April 23rd, 2014. Aw, what about his other two wives? I don't even know if they're alive. (laughs) I didn't didn't really search them. All right. Good enough. Have you ever been to Harry Carey's? I have not. I have not either. It's kind of like the Margaritaville of of Cubsdom. So I don't, I I'm don't just, I'm not into it. I, I see what I'd you, rather yeah. go to like a hole in the wall. Yeah, for sure. Down in Wrigleyville. Cause those are the best places. Like the little dirty kind of seedy mm-hmm. places. I like those the best. Yeah. There's, there's, they got a lot. Of, it almost feels touristy. Yeah. I guess the yeah. best way to put it is, you know, like Michael Jordan was like, Hey, we need to go to Michael Jordan's. No, I'm not going. No, I'm not sorry, going. but I don't trust Michael Jordan to cook a good steak. I remember when he was making burgers at McDonald's and they were not that good. Yeah. Yeah. Not great. No. Kerry had a number of broadcasting partners and colleagues throughout the years, some of whom made known their dislike of the man. He had a particularly frosty relationship with Milo Hamilton, or Milo Ham- Hamilton, if you're pronouncing it correctly. <laughs> His first partner with <laughs> the Cubs. Yeah. Who felt Kerry had pushed him out in St. Louis in the mid-50s? Hamilton, who was the presumptive successor to Jack Brickhouse prior to Kerry's hiring, was fired by WGN in 1984. He claimed that that station officials told him that the main reason was that Kerry did not like him. Kerry's longtime St. Louis partner, Jack Buck, was guarded in his comments about Kerry and his own autobiography, while acknowledging that he sometimes felt held back by Kerry. Jack Buck was a hell of a broadcaster. Yeah, yeah. So I could see how he felt. I mean, that's like two alpha 
Rams. Well, just, and Harry Carey, to be honest, was was more of a novelty than anything. So that probably really rubbed the the professional guys the wrong way. Because here's this guy just drinking beers and slurring his words and almost a gimmick. Except it wasn't a gimmick, right? That just was Harry, and and I, he had that it personality. Yeah, and I think that probably drives someone who's you know. Oh yeah, drives him crazy. I mean, he's like the. the the Rodney Dangerfield on the golf course in Cadillac. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I gotta watch that. Cadillac. Cad- Caddyshack. Caddyshack. I, yeah. Jeez. I would have probably there's an email mispronounced. <laughs> <laughs> Gear Evish podcast. <laughs> However, Kerry also did not lack for broadcast companions who played well with him on and off the field. With the White Sox, his long lasting longest lasting partner was Jimmy Purcell. With the Cubs, he was teamed for 14 years with former pitcher Steve Stone. And I thought they made a great team. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was, he was the good straight man. To- Perfect match. Kerry was known for his unba- unabashed homerism. While advertisers played up his habit of openly rooting for the Cubs from the booth, uh, one, for one example, a Budweiser ad described him as Cubs fan Budman in a Blues Brothers-style parody of Soul Man. <laughs> I, I remember I, those. I do remember those, too. I just never He's made dressed this. Dressed up in, like, a black suit. Yep. The, and, uh, yeah, the hat and everything. The yeah. Tie. He had been even less restrained about rooting for the Cardinals when he broadcasted for them. He said later that his firing from the Cardinals changed his outlook and made him realize that his passion was for the game itself and the fans more than anything else. He was also well-known for his frequent exclamation of, Holy cow! As he noted in interviews and in his autobiography, Holy Cow, he trained himself to use this expression to avoid any chance of using profanity on the air. <laughs> <laughs> that's so perfect. That is. That's pretty good. Kerry also avoided any risk of miscalling a home run using what became a trademark home run call, which was the, it might be, it could be, it is a home run, Holy Cow. In Holy Cow, Kerry said he first used the, it might be, part of that expression on air while covering a college baseball tournament in Kalamazoo, Michigan. In the early so that long ago he came up with that. Jeez. In the early 1940s that was. That's probably the best home run call ever. I mean I might be partial, I might be biased, but I think that's the it, best. I love I love it. The it, best home run call uh, I've ever heard. Name another one. Um well, the the Yank George Sterling's got a yeah, lot of his, them. You know. And he's always over the top and I'm not crazy. Yeah. <sighs> And then they he calls. Now he calls him a text message to the outfield. Oh come on! Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> Yankees fans, Yankees announcer, just whatever. <laughs> In 1987, the Cubs had Ryan Sandberg, Jim Sundberg, and Scott Sanderson on the roster. Kerry had suffered a stroke in February. Oh, no, and often confused these names. <laughs> And it was not uncommon uncommon for him to refer to Jim Sandberg, Ryan Sanderson, or Ryan Sandbag, <laughs> or Scott Sunberg. <laughs> I think we're kindred spirits, because I think I've done that numerous times yeah, on this yeah, podcast. Kerry yeah. <laughs> was intrigued by unusual names, and one of his frequent on-air bits was to try to pronounce a multi-syllabic <laughs> name backwards. <laughs> I didn't think it was on purpose, but okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> this bit became more challenging for him in the 1987 season following a stroke, but he kept trying, even poking fun at himself. Oh. Two, two players' names he took delight in pronouncing backwards were Toby Hera and James Truck Hanna. <laughs> even short names sometimes amused him. 
once when Manny Moda had just lined out to a Cardinals fielder who did not even need to move to move his feet to make the catch. Harry proclaimed, Moda spelled backwards as Adam, and that's where he hit it. Right at him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he must have had that one in his pocket for years. Yep. Did you? Here's another one. Did you realize that Dykstra spelled backwards is Art Skid? <laughs> I did not realize that. Thank you, Harry. Gary <laughs> had a reputation for mastering all aspects of broadcasting, writing his own copy, conducting news interviews, writing and presenting editorials, covering other sports such as University of Missouri football, and hosting a sports talk program. Gary was considered a fans broadcaster above all, along the lines of such announcers as uh, the New York's and San Francisco Giants legends Russ Hodges or Pittsburgh Pirates legend Bob Prince. And that did not always earn him respect to equal his popularity. However, Kerry never pretended to be the kind of objective announcer that such broadcasters as Red Barber and Vin Scully prided themselves on being regardless of their team's attachments. Now, Vin Scully signed on for yet another year. Yeah, yeah, he's, he is. He's, he's another legend. Of oh, yeah. One. He's the legend, I would say. I mean, yeah. Harry Kerry's obviously, you know, I've. He's grown different. up with him. He's good in the way, but yeah, I mean, Vince Scully's definitely the consummate professional uh, and the legendary. Definitely, definitely, and, and, uh, and I'll, yeah, I'll get to covering him, yeah, one day soon for yeah. sure. Uh, though best known and honored for his baseball work, Kerry also called uh football games, ice hockey games, the St. Louis Flyers, basketball games, including the Celtics. I can't even imagine. An old Harry Carey trying to do hockey or basketball yeah. or anything else. I mean, football maybe, but like yeah. hockey especially. Hockey, baseball, or basketball are just so quick. There's so much. There's always movement and always something yeah. going on. But this was back in the 40s and 50s and 60s, so okay. different okay. time. So he wasn't like 80 years old trying right. to call a hockey game. <laughs> I would pay money to hear that. Just, like, yeah, just a pay clip, please. good amount of money to hear even just a little bit of that. Uh, additionally, he also broadcasted eight Cotton Bowl games on uh, network radio and here are some quotes gotta get into the carry carry oh yes oh oh, this is talking about jorge orta oh how could he lose the ball in the sun he's from mexico (laughs) (laughs) oh no harry (laughs) harry bruise broads and bullshit if you got all that what else do you need I figure I had no business being here this long anyway, so what do you people care how old I am? <laughs> I've been yeah. on borrowed time for years. You know yeah. my old saying, live it up, the meter's running. I've always said that if you don't have fun while you're here, then it's your own fault. You only get to do this once, and I like that one. I'll tell you what's helped me in my entire life. I look at baseball as a game. It's something where people can go out, enjoy, and have fun. Nothing more. I think it's the greatest shot an arm baseball could get. Once upon a time, all kids wanted to be baseball players. But nowadays, young kids dream of playing basketball or football and making millions. It's great to see a man, Michael Jordan, who had reached this pinnacle of his career, and now he wants to go back to do what he always wanted to do as a kid, play baseball. Do you think Harry Carey is part of the Michael Jordan conspiracy? No. Okay. No. Well, he was involved. He might be behind it. He, he had that kind of pull. <laughs> <laughs> It's the fans that need spring training. You got to get them interested. Wake them back up and let them know that the season is coming. The good times are going to roll. It's only been, I've only been doing this 54 years. With a little experience, I might get better. <laughs> <laughs> About take me out to the ball game. I would always sing it because it's 
I think it's the only song I knew all the words to. (laughs) (laughs) Now you tell me, if I have a day off during the baseball season, where do you think I'll spend it? The ballpark. I still love it. Always have, always will. Oh, I get a little tired now and then, but knowing my lifestyle, that's only natural. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. About Expos fans. They discovered boo is pronounced the same French as it is in English. (laughs) 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 This has been the remarkable uh, thing about the fans in Chicago. They keep drawing an average of three, a million three a year, and when the season's over, and they've won their usual 71 games, you, you feel that those fans deserve a medal. Oh. <laughs> Thanks, Harry. <laughs> you, about President Reagan. You could tell he was an old radio guy. He never once looked at the television monitor. <laughs> and I'm going to end with this poem I found by um, Mike Stoker. Where Lou still starts and Babe still swings, where Johnny still sees and Leo still screams, where Don still throws and Mickey still hits, Harry still sings. Aww. Yeah. Good old Harry Carey. Indeed. That was an easy one for me to do. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. There's a lot of personal ties there. A lot of YouTube videos. That was fun. Yeah, that too. <laughs> yeah, just just an awesome guy. And I don't know, how do you feel about the Homer allegations? Yeah, for sure. Well, I, but does it? it doesn't bother me. Because it was Harry Carey. Well, I mean, in any case, it doesn't really bother me. I mean, I get that, you know. Oh, as far as, like, bother? like should, Yeah, yeah, how you feel about your homerism home in, in announcers. It's, it's, it's the home team. There's a way no for it to be over the top in some cases, but, I mean. No, but I, yeah. I don't really have a problem with it. If you're listening to your home teams or your the team that you're a fan of's broadcast, then you want them to be a little bit more, at least, enthusiastic about the plays on your team. Yeah, as long as they don't go the other way and, and, and t- try to discount the other team. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's always nice when they tip their cap to the other team if yeah. they do something good. Uh, yeah, I've never had a problem with homerism. Yeah. So that was one of the more unique people in baseball, for sure. Absolutely. If you don't know who Harry Carey is, then watch some YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that's possible. I mean, you wouldn't know who he is, but definitely you got to watch some videos. It's 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 great. I mean, Will Ferrell will pull out a Harry Carey person, remember, impression. I mean, still to this day. Ryan Dempster. Yeah. Uh, once I remember watching him, you know, he's a pitcher for the Cubs. And I remember him reading the lineups on WGN as Harry Carey. Yeah. yeah and, Harry Carey with the glasses and everything. Uh, yeah, he did. He did. He wear the yeah, glasses. He did that, that more right. than once. Yeah. Every now and then he'd pop on WGN and read the lineups on TV <laughs> doing a Harry Carey impression. And uh, Greg Holland, uh, Texas, same thing. Yeah. Known for a Harry Carey oh, impression. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So. And those the Saturday Night Live skits are great, too. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. Thanks, man. No problem. So, any, uh, you know, if I mispronounced anything there, <laughs> you know where to find us. Yeah. Ephispodcast at gmail.com. Ephus. Or you can get a hold of us at our webpage, ephispodcast.com. Facebook as well, ephispodcast on Facebook. It's been great to hear from you guys, and I hope to hear from more. If you know, you have a friend that you think might be interested in the podcast, let them know. Let them know. Like Give us, us a review. Yes, the reviews on iTunes apparently yes. helps. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what it does, but you guys have been good about that, too. Boosts my ego. That's, That's what it does. Well, it doesn't boost mine. No. There's no way mine can go any higher. Oh! 
<laughs> what an egotistical thing to say. Yay! All right, on that note, we'll see you guys next week. Same place, same time. Bye-bye. Bye.